listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. All right, so we're starting today off with a TMT, a two-minute teaching. Um, and this week we're learning about Polycarp. So my daughter just asked me if Polycarp was some kind of New Testament fish. And the answer is no, it's a person. Um, So Polycarp was born around 69 AD, and uh, church history tells us that he was a Christian from a young age as a child, and um, that he was a disciple of John the Apostle. So he was only one one generation removed from Jesus himself. Um, He became the bishop of Smyrna as an adult, that's in modern-day Turkey, and uh, lived a long and uh, very fruitful Christian life. Um, But when he was 86 years old, he was arrested by the authorities, and no one's quite sure why it took so long for them to arrest him um, and, uh, and kind of begin a persecution against him. But when he was 86, he was arrested, and he was taken before some kind of Roman proconsul or something like that. And clearly the guy did not really want to kill an 86-year-old man. So he kind of begged Polycarp, just just renounce Christ, like it's not a big deal, just do it and then you can go home. And Polycarp said, it's worth quoting exactly what he said, 86 years have I served him, Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Um, And so uh, they said, okay, well then that's that. And they threatened to, they decided to burn him at the stake. And they were going to nail him to the, to the post so that he wouldn't try to get away. And when they, tried to, when they started to do that, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So he said, I have more power than you can imagine. I can stay here and endure this, so don't worry about it. Um, and the reason we know this is because the uh, uh, eyewitness account was written of Polycarp's martyrdom about a year after it happened. Um, so I'm quoting from that eyewitness account. And witnesses say that when the fire was lit, it formed an arch around him, almost like a circle, and they could see him on the inside, um, inside the fire. And an eyewitness wrote, Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked, or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And we smelled a sweet scent, like frankincense or some precious spices. And so uh, Polycarp's offering was a sweet smell to God and to uh, the people of God. And in fact, the fire did not kill Polycarp. He had to be killed with a sword uh, because the fire seemed to leave him completely unharmed. Uh, Reminds me of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into the fire uh, but came out smelling sweet. Um, And his martyrdom, Polycarp's martyrdom, is the first recorded martyrdom after the New Testament um, and set the stage for uh, Christians for many, many centuries, including today, uh, to stay firm in the Lord. Thanks, Christina. Man, that kind of fires me up, no pun intended. (laughs) Anyways, our scripture today is from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. 
And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thanks, Chris. It's the story of my life. Have you ever said that to yourself or maybe one of your friends frustrated with your life circumstances? Uh, my brother-in-law and I are not the luckiest guys in the world when it comes to walleye tournament fishing. Every, every year for the past, I don't know how many years, we've been trying to win a certain walleye tournament on Lake Ponset. And something always keeps us out of the winner's circle. Never fails. We do pretty well, but we never quite get there. You know, something happens. Our trolley motor quits, or one of us gets terribly sick the day of the tournament, or you know, our, our best friends catch the, the winning fish in our spot. Something happens, and we end up just feeling, you know, it's, it's kind of become a running joke. We can't even win anything at the prize giveaway the night before the tournament. You know, they have this prize giveaway to kind of make everybody feel like a winner, even though they know most people aren't going to be winners like us. And they give away prizes to almost everybody. And we've had it multiple years in a row where neither one of us wins anything at the prize giver. We're like, were our names even in the hat? We just want to know, like, did we even have a chance? Because it's actually astounding the odds of not winning something many years in a row. And inevitably, every time we go away there dejected, my brother-in-law will say, yeah, well, it's the story of my life. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm just not that lucky of a person. So this doesn't shock me at all. This is, this is just a snapshot of the rest of my life. This is how the rest of my life goes. And I think if Jesus were here looking at our text from the Gospel of Luke today, he would say, yep, story of my life right there. That about sums it up. Because this text here is Jesus' life writ small so that we can see it at a glance. It's a snapshot. It's a microcosm. Of the, of the larger narrative of his life. It has all the major pieces and movements of the whole story of Jesus' life. Now, the crazy part is that the story of Jesus' life also becomes the story of the church's life. Of course, we know that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, so the story of the church as well. And it's very interesting to see all the parallels between Jesus' life and the church's life, as we just heard about one of our church fathers, Polycarp. And of course, if we say, hey, those two have lots of parallels, we have to conclude, like, this isn't just the story of Jesus' life that we're reading. This is the story of our life. And if you're paying attention as Chris read the scripture, you might be saying, oh, no, that doesn't sound good. I know. It's the story of our life, though, right? So we have to look at it. And so that's what we're doing today. We're looking at the story of Jesus' life and the story of our lives. And there's this three distinct phases that we see here in Luke's gospel. And the first is, of course, the positive phase. We'll start on a positive note. 
Verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled. And remember from last week, uh, we were in the same section just a few verses earlier, the, the verses that come right before this. Jesus has just finished quoting the prophet Isaiah. He's promised that he's the, com- the, the Messiah who has come. He's the promised year of Jubilee, the one who's going to be- preach good news to the poor, set the captives free, open blind eyes. He's, he's liberating those who are oppressed. Monster statement that Jesus gives. He, he sits down and gives this one-sentence sermon. Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. And initially, the reaction to Jesus' words here is really positive. I mean, verse 22, look, it says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And as we get started here, I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus always drew extreme responses. As you read the Gospels, just take note of that. He always drew extreme responses. C.S. Lewis highlights this in a 1950 essay he wrote entitled, What Are We to Make of Jesus? He says, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And Lewis is right. The reactions to Jesus were always extreme. And many times, at least we see in the Gospels, at least initially, the people's reaction to Jesus is overwhelmingly positive. People marveled at him. People worshipped him. People flocked to see him. People threw their coats on the ground and welcomed him with shouts of Hosanna as he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Of course, we'll see in the book of Acts that the church initially also saw this kind of positive response. I mean, it says thousands were being added to their number daily. Thousands. Miracles were happening all around them. People were marveling at the signs and wonders that God was doing. It was an incredible thing to see. It's important for you to know that the truth is, the story of your life could very easily follow suit. The reaction of some to you becoming a Christian or to you sharing the gospel with them will likely be incredibly positive. It'll be met with unthinkable joy, with wonder, with awe, with excitement. And you really need to know that and you need to grab hold of that, that there are those people out there. You know, we talked about last week that one of the things Jesus comes to do is to open the blind eyes, right? And the Holy Spirit is doing that work. He's opening blind eyes. And those are the people that are going to respond to your message with incredible joy. They're going to receive you like an oasis in the middle of the desert. They're going to welcome you with open arms like, where have you been all my life with this good news? And you need to meditate on that and think about that because oftentimes when we get to the second response, it starts to make us really timid, like nobody's going to react to us that way. Like nobody's going to receive what we have as good news. But that's not the truth. Often this good news is received as that. It's great news that Jesus is the rescuer of the world. But of course, there is a second phase, and that second phase, if we're not careful, will make us timid. So we need to remember the first phase. But let's go to the, that second phase. Luke spends the, most, uh, the majority of his time there, and so we will as well. This is the negative phase, the minimizing, the rejection, the anger, persecution, and death. This is the second type of response that we often see to Jesus. The story of Jesus' life is made up of uh, this predominantly. And you need to know that as a Christian yourself, this too is to be expected. I was telling the, the group, um, the staff and the, the team as we were praying this morning, like, as I was studying this week, I was like, do I really expect 
persecution? Do I really expect all these negative responses? Do I expect the possibility of death? The truth is no. No. But it should be expected. So there, we actually have a, a unique work to do here in this text together as believers to say, I know we don't expect it, but we probably should, right? And so we were asking the Holy Spirit, like, would you condition our hearts as we look at this real possibility that we could face all these things that Jesus faces easily in our lifetime? And first, in this negative response, we see a minimizing of Jesus and his words. Look at the last section of verse 22. The, the people say, is not this Joseph's son? And of course, the commentators are right to say this could still be part of the people marveling at Jesus, right? Saying, wow, look, isn't this Joseph's son? He's really well-spoken. He's doing a great job, you know, preaching in the synagogue. But I included it in the negative response because it's a true minimizing of everything Jesus just said about himself, right? He just said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the year of Jubilee. And then they chop him down right away to like, this is, this is Joseph's boy, right? This is the carpenter's son. And the same thing will often happen to you as a Christian as you try to establish your new identity in Christ. I think it's significant that we see this reaction, of, reaction to Jesus by those closest to him in his hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus points that out here. He says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And you need to know that more than likely your most painful rejections, your most, most difficult situations are going to come from people closest to you. Your family members close friends, people who you've spent a, a lot of time with over the years. Those are going to be the most painful rejections that you have in your life. And one of the things they'll try to do is they'll try to put old identities on you like they do with Jesus here. Like, you're not the Messiah. Come on, you're Joseph's boy. That's who you are. Or they're going to say to you, like, you know, that's, you're, not, you're not a Christian. You remember who you are. You're the party king. Or you're the workaholic. Or when, when did you become so serious about all these spiritual things? That's not who you are. You're not this this new person, you're still the same old you. Try to put old identities on you. And it's really hard to shake what they say to you because it's coming from people who really have spent a lot of time with you. They really did know the person you used to be. Family can be a very, very difficult place for a Christian. And Jesus reminds us of this in Luke 12, 51 through 53, when he says this, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It's a lot of division. And boy, does that hurt. You know, many of you know this kind of pain. You have it in your own home, in your own family, people in your family that don't know Jesus. And many of you, you've been rejected because of your love for Jesus. Some of the deepest pain that you can know. So there's a minimizing of Jesus that happens here from his hometown people. You might say his family, the people he grew up with. Church people. And no doubt that could happen to you as well. But that's pretty mild compared to what comes next, right? After minimizing Jesus, Jesus tells them some things in verses 23 through 27 that the scriptures say that moves them to wrath. So what is it that Jesus is saying here that makes these Jewish people in the synagogue so incredibly angry? Like, it gets really bad here. He goes, essentially, you know, Jesus is saying, look, my mission is just as much for outsiders as it is for you Jewish people. 
And Luke really highlights that in his gospel. He's, Luke is the gospel for the outsider, for the Gentile, for the women, for the slaves, for the children. Like he's, he's saying, no, 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 the gospel is good news for all these people on the margins, tax collectors. Like you'll hear that over and over and over in Luke's gospel, a lifting up of those people on the margins. And Jesus is saying that here. He's saying that you don't have any special privilege to the good news. The outsiders have the same access to it as you do. It's clear that these Jews are saying to Jesus, look, you did these great works in Capernaum, which Capernaum was the place where Jesus started his ministry, according to Matthew. And Capernaum is a town rich with, full of Gentile people. So these Jewish people are saying, look, you did these great works in Capernaum, you had better do something better here in your hometown that's filled with Jewish people. And Jesus uses their own scriptures to dash their expectations, right? He uses two stories. He says, nope, you can't expect exclusive privileges just because you're Jewish. That doesn't, that doesn't count for anything here. The two examples he uses are, are of the widow of Zarephath and Naaman. Now, if you know the story of the widow of Zarephath, Jesus says, look, there were lots of widows in that time where there was famine in the land, and Elijah the prophet comes to this widow at Zarephath, and he says, look, will you give me something to eat? And she says to him, I've only got a little flour and a little oil left, then me and my son are going to starve to death. He says, feed me first. I promise your flour and your oil won't run out. And he's good for his promise. God does a miracle and extends their food miraculously. And so her and her boy, they live. But sometime down the road, her boy dies. Elijah comes back to her and raises her son from the dead. It's an incredible story. The only problem is she's a Gentile. Why is God favoring this Gentile woman, this, this, this widow who's a Gentile? There were certainly widows in Israel, but Jesus reminds them, no, God has a heart for the Gentile too. And the second story is even worse. It's of Naaman. Naaman wasn't just a Gentile. He was the commander in the Assyrian army, army who had come in and conquered Israel and taken their people captive. This would have been an awful message to these Jewish people. They would have heard it like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You're not bringing up Naaman. And yeah, Jesus says there were lots of lepers in Israel. God healed one. His name was Naaman. He was not only a, a Gentile, but he was a persecutor of Israel. God has a heart for more than just the Jewish people. Jesus says it's for everyone, even the Gentiles. And it's these words that just flip the switch in the crowd. They are moved to murderous wrath. And they start driving Jesus out of the synagogue towards the edge of a cliff. So you talk about extreme reactions here. We move from... They, they spoke well of him and approved of him, marveled at his words, to now drive him to the edge of the cliff. That really escalated quickly. I mean, this is a bad day in church. I've had some bad Sundays. I've preached some bad sermons where I go home and I'm just like, what happened there? That just didn't go well. You know, I've never had anything like this. We all just start driving me out the back door. We don't have any cliffs around here, thankfully. But can you just imagine that? That's a terrible day at church. My guess is most of us haven't experienced any hatred, anything like this, or we probably wouldn't be here today. But we really need to level with the fact that we are following the guy they killed. Right? We're following the guy they killed. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. So there's a mirroring of our storylines. Jesus had his life threatened several times in his short three years of ministry. And the final time, he did actually die. So, you know, we talked about last week that 
um, Jesus' work in ministry. Our work in ministry is going to mirror Jesus' work in ministry. Well, the same thing with the general story of our lives. Our, the general story of our life is going to mirror the general story of Jesus' life. And, and persecution and death were a big part of the story of Jesus' life. A big part of our story. A big part of the church's story. We heard about Polycarp today. But let's remember that all of Jesus' disciples were persecuted. All of them and most of them brutally executed for their faith. James was thrown off the top of the temple. And somehow he survived that. So they beat him with clubs till he died. Peter was crucified upside down, church history will tell us. Because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Uh, John the Evangelist was boiled in a vat of oil. And he lived, which I think is very disappointing. You know, if I'm boiled in a vat of oil, I want to die as quickly as possible. But he lived, and they, then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. A terrible fate. This is what happens to Jesus' followers. It's no secret that shortly after Christianity's warm reception and early growth, it was hit with waves of persecution, both by the Jewish people, so kind of an inside persecution, and by the Romans, by you know, Roman emperor after Roman emperor, just pockets and waves of persecution. It's a big part of the story of Christians' lives. And look, even if we don't die at the hands of a persecutor, the call to the Christian is to die nonetheless. Stanley Hauerwas says, Christians know that Christianity is simply extended training in dying early. That is what we've always been about. Extended training in dying early. I just don't think in those terms. I was wrestling with this this week. Like, I personally don't think in those terms when I think about my Christian faith. Extended training and dying early? We're not pushed to do that here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, said, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. So there's no way around it, friends. Following Jesus is going to mean the death of you one way or another. It may not mean physical death through martyrdom. I hope it doesn't mean that. But it'll for sure mean the death of you in sort of a spiritual sense, right? That you die to yourself, your wants, your dreams for your life, your plans for how things should go. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, Galatians 2.20, For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I live in the body, I now live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see, he's saying there's a mirroring of our stories. My story is tracking with Jesus' story. I've been crucified with Christ. We really need to get that through our minds. You're not getting out of this thing alive. To be a Christian is to endure suffering, to be hated, to be persecuted, and it will no doubt involve death. And if we ended the sermon there, that'd be a huge bummer, wouldn't it? If that was just it, phase two is all there is, and, and that's it. But that's not the end of the story. There is hope, and there's one final phase of Jesus' story, and one final phase of the story of our lives as well, and that's phase three, escape through resurrection. Look at verse 29 through 30. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the, of the hill on which their town was built. So towns were built up on, on you know, kind of cliffs or hills back then. And so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So just picture this with me. This is crazy, right? I just have a hard time imagining this. These are church folks, right? Long-time church folks. These are the people that babysat Jesus. 
had Jesus and his, his brothers and sisters over for dinner and hung out with him. They grew up with him. They, they had been friends with Mary and Joseph. These are his people, right? And they get so angry that they drive him out of the synagogue where they're like, no, we're not stopping there. He's going off the cliff. Going off the cliff today. It was that offensive what he said to them. And then as they're pushing him there, Luke says, he, but passing through their midst, he went away. Just kind of an offhanded comment. Like, this is kind of normal for Jesus. He can just get out of stuff when he wants to. And I'm thinking, did he become invisible? Does he have kind of a cloaking device? Does, you know, how does this work exactly? What did Jesus do here? You know, I mean, this is a miracle to me. Luke doesn't really count it as a miracle so much, but he actually just escapes. And I don't know about you, but if you ever see an angry mob, they don't lose sight of the person that they're trying to take out. Right? They don't just, like, get distracted. They're on a mission, and all of a sudden they're like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And he's gone. And I just kind of picture Jesus walking away, chuckling a little bit. Like they thought, you know, I just told him I was the Messiah, and they thought they could just kill me right there. But he, he leaves. He's gone. But the big idea here is that Jesus escapes death. That's the big idea. That's phase three. And you might say, wait, wait. How does this line up with the larger story of Jesus' life? Because when we look at the larger story of Jesus' life, Jesus doesn't escape death, does he? Like, he actually dies, right? Well, let's think about it for a moment. It's true that down the road, the Jews would again demand that Jesus be put to death. They would indeed turn him over to the Romans to crucify him. But in the Gospels, Jesus makes two things crystal clear. First of all, he says, look, nobody's going to take my life from me. I am going to lay it down on my own accord. But secondly, he also says that I could have escaped if I wanted to. So yes, Jesus did in fact die for our sins on the cross as our substitute, as he chose to do. He was truly dead and then was buried. But remember, remember on the third day, Jesus did exactly what we see a glimpse of here in our text. He escaped the clutches of death yet again. And so see, friends, this passage is a snapshot of the, the story of Jesus' life because Jesus beats death every single time. Jesus beats death every single time. Here in our text, he beats death by avoiding it, but ultimately he's going to beat death by conquering it. He beats death by his resurrection. And thankfully, the story of your life, the story of my life, will follow suit. As Christians, we're called to endure suffering and to die, for sure to ourselves, but perhaps even at the hands of a persecutor. And if that happens to any one of us in here, if we get word that one of our brothers or sisters has been killed for their faith in Jesus, let none of the rest of us think that's the end of their story. That is not how their story ends. That is not how any one of your stories will end. Your story always ends in resurrection. Your story always ends in life. Why? Because you belong to Jesus, and Jesus always beats death every single time. Yes, you've been crucified with Christ, but that also means you'll be raised with Christ in his resurrection. Remember how we talked about this a few weeks ago with Kelsey in the baptistry? And we said, look, baptism is this beautiful picture of how we're united with Christ. We're so connected to him that our storylines mirror one another, right? So we go down under the water in death. We're buried with Christ in baptism. 
and we're raised up out of the water in his resurrection to live a new life in him. It's an incredibly powerful reminder of the fact that gives us this incredible hope and confidence that the story of our life is so tied to Jesus, we're so connected to him, that absolutely nothing can bring us down. Absolutely nothing can defeat us, not even death itself. I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Dave, I'm not a Christian and I don't have that kind of confidence. Maybe you've been wrestling with fear and anxiety. Death and suffering, they frighten you a great deal. The uncertainty of the world, maybe it's shaking you right now. The world does feel very uncertain. We welcome you to come to Jesus today, the one who defeated Satan, sin, and death for you, that when you put your faith in him, you can be so tied to him that you need fear nothing else the rest of life. Or maybe you're here today and you are a Christian, you're saying, Pastor Dave, I really need help with this idea of persecution. Like, I struggle with being rejected. I don't know about you, but I, I hate rejection, whether that be, you know, some of the workplaces that I've been in, or, you know, maybe for some of you, it's your family, your circles of friends, that when you bring up things of faith, you're made fun of, you're mocked, or you're just, they, you're just kind of ignored for it. Maybe you just need that prayer for boldness. Maybe you're battling fear or timidity uh, for the things that God's calling you to. We want to pray for you. And here's the deal. I can't guarantee you that it's not going to go bad for you. Obviously, I think the Bible tells us confidently it's way more likely to get rougher for us as Christians than it is to get easier. But one thing we can say with absolute confidence, the story of your life will not end in death because Jesus beats death every time. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text today. We thank you, Jesus, that you have conquered death, Satan, sin, for us. And that we can have confidence in you no matter what. If we face the flames like Polycarp or if we just endure ridicule at our workplace, if we just endure ostracization from our family members, whatever it is, Lord, we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would give us strength to stand in the face of whatever we have to endure for you, Lord Jesus. We pray that we would have the same heart as the disciples who don't complain when, you, when we suffer, but they, they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Would you put that in our hearts today? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.